for Dynamic Deputies. Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. A warm welcome to all our listeners and to my co-host Steve. Hi everyone and thanks Russell. It's lovely to be talking to you once again and we're delighted to be welcoming back a previous guest for today's episode. We are indeed, Steve. We're joined once again by Andrew Percival, who has been a huge influence on us as leaders. Andrew is a deputy head teacher with a passion for curriculum and how the principles of cognitive science can be applied in the classroom. Andrew, it's great to have you back on the podcast once again. Brilliant. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. And Andrew, I must say, yesterday made me laugh because on Twitter, I literally saw a hashtag be more personal. And I was like, yes, you made, that's amazing. Um, but yeah, that was Shannon. Shannon. It was Shannon. Yeah, it definitely was. <laughs> now, last time we spoke to you, Andrew, it was all about creating a curriculum for long-term learning. Today, we're talking about a different kind of curriculum, a curriculum for behaviour. Before we get too much into that, can you just start by clarifying why excellent behaviour is so important in our schools? Okay, so what I'd start with is, what would it be like if we didn't have it? So imagine that you've been working for years on your you know, amazing curriculum. You've, you've got it really well sequenced. You've got put all that effort into those layers of curriculum, those links across different year groups and so on. So you've got this brilliant curriculum and you've got teachers who are just experts in explaining uh, and getting children to remember uh, what you want them to remember. So you've got all this brilliant stuff. If you haven't got behaviour, all of that's meaningless. It's not going to happen, is it? It's not going to be enacted in the classroom. So you absolutely need, need behaviour right. And at, at Stanley Road, where I work, we have um, what we call three pillars, and they kind of underpin everything that we do. So the first one, and, and it's it's important that it's the first one, is exemplary behaviour. And then we have knowledge-rich curriculum, and then we have explicit teaching. And if I had to choose one of those to have, it would be the behaviour one every time. Because if you haven't got that right, the other things are not going to function. You're not going to be able to carry out your core business as a school. So, you know, if you think of the core business of what we're there for, we're there for educating the children, making sure that they're able to read and write and do maths and, and understand the world. That's our that's our core business. And the reason for me that behavior is so important is that the better we get behavior, the easier that core business becomes. What we want to do is kind of sweat the small stuff around behavior so that actually we don't really need to think about it much anymore because we can actually then get on with our job of actually teaching the children in front of us. And so teachers can get on with teaching unimpeded. So we absolutely need to teach behavior and make sure that that's as high standard as possible. So we have the smooth running of the school, but also the other kind of factor here is that we not just thinking of our school and the, and the children in it at that moment, but what's going to happen later when those children leave us? What sort of people will they become? And so we have a role in making sure that we that our pupils develop as you know, their characters. And so they develop attitudes and habits that are going to set them up for life, whether that's you know in high school or, or beyond that. So we want them to value hard work and to, to be grateful, uh, to be kind, to uh, be polite to each other. Those are the sorts of things that we really want to develop in our pupils for the long term. So it's the smooth running of the school. Like that's not going to happen without that behavior being absolutely as the best it can be. And obviously, the better it is, the better the running of the school, but also the sort of wider picture of thinking, what, who do we want our children to be? So. One um, really interesting book that I've read recently on this, in this area is by a guy called James Clear, and it's called Atomic Habits. Um, and a lot of behavior management is about habit formation. And, and I really recommend this book. If you're interested in like either improving some aspect of your own life or thinking about behavior in schools, in Atomic Habits, James Clear talks about the most practical, he says, the most practical way to change who you are is to change what you do. So in other words, like the things that we do shape who we become. And he says your identity emerges out of your habits. So, so if you make your bed every morning, then you kind of embody the identity of an organized person. If you go for a run every morning, you can embody the identity of an athletic person. So the more you sort of repeat those behaviors, that then you become that person, the, the, those habits that you form. So for us, we want our pupils to form these habits so they become different people. One thing we, we want our pupils to be is to be polite. Uh, in the morning when children coming in school, we say good morning and we expect them to say good morning, sir, or good morning, miss. And if they don't, we insist on it and we say, oh, you've, <laughs> and we see, it's usually a nice conversation. You see, oh, you've forgotten to say, what do we actually say at Stanley Road? Oh, sorry, yeah, good morning, sir. And you say, yeah, brilliant. Okay, have a lovely day. And so you have a nice little interaction and pupils 
as we do that over and over and over again, then we don't need to prompt them anymore because they just do that naturally. And then if we were to ask our pupils, are you polite? They'll say, yeah, I am because I always say good morning to people in the morning and I say it in a really polite way. So the, the action of doing that, the habit of uh, saying good morning makes you think, oh, I'm, I'm quite a polite person. And, and you know, that's the sort of attitude that we want our pupils to have. So there's sort of two things there were the um, smooth running of the school and uh, the kind of the wider picture. But I'll just add one more thing, if that's okay. You'll know that we're kind of heading towards a recruitment and retention crisis in teaching. Okay, Mm -hmm. it's starting to bite now, but it's going to get much worse before it gets better. And it's really worrying because it's sort of a perfect storm where we'll get where lots of teachers are leaving the profession and not so many are joining. And and in particular, for some secondary subjects, you know, the situation is really quite dire. So what's that got to do with behaviour? Well, Teachers don't really like dealing with behaviour. Most teachers would rather not have to deal with it. So um, I'll just I'll just share this like survey data from TeacherTab, which I think is really interesting. Uh, TeacherTab surveyed their users and asked asked this question. It's a bit long winded, but I'll read it out because it's, it's worth. It's a good one. So it says um, you're moving to a new area, so you need to find a new job. There's two options. The first school has a low workload culture where teachers all leave without marking by 4:30 p.m. However, in your tour of the school, you can see quite a bit of student disruption in class. The second school has impeccable behaviour, but teachers you meet admit they tend to have to work very long hours. Which school would you choose? And when TeacherTap ran that, they had uh, 3,000 respondents and two thirds said they would rather have the longer working hours, but the impeccable behaviour. So if you think about that, that people are saying, I would rather do anything else than deal with behaviour. I would rather mark endless piles of books i would rather input data into tracking spreadsheets you know people would rather do anything than have to manage paper or certainly like a, a good chunk of, of teachers so for me if i'm thinking okay we're facing this recruitment crisis mm. do i want any of the teachers from my school thinking i could go elsewhere and i could work in a school where there's better behavior you know i, re- I don't want that i want to keep those teachers in our school who are doing a brilliant job already. And I think it's it's just like something at the back of my mind at the moment that this recruitment crisis is living and what can we do about it? You feel like you can't do much about it, but if we can get behavior sorted in schools Mm. and we can get workloads sorted in schools, then we're hopefully going to be protected from that crisis that's heading our way. Yeah. Just thinking of them, Andrew, I'm assuming your staff retention is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, you know, I don't know percentages, I don't know what national percentages are, but it certainly feels like we don't really lose people. In fact, we've got a lot of teachers, amazing teachers who are ready to go on to leadership roles. And when they've gone and looked at other schools, they've come back and said, I'm not going to bother applying, <laughs> either because of behaviour or things like marking and workload. Wonderful. What a lovely answer. Um, Andrew, until I saw you tweet about it, I have to admit, I never really thought about behaviour as a curriculum area that we could plan for and sort of explicitly teach as such. I obviously knew it was very important, but it just felt like one of those things perhaps you had a policy for, you had some rules for. And as a leader, I knew I should support my colleagues with it as much as possible. Why did your school decide to kind of codify those behaviours into a into an actual curriculum area? And was behaviour a problem before you did this? OK, so, so I'll, I'll take that the sort of final point, the final question there, which was, was behaviour a problem? So I've been working at Stanley Road for a very long time. In fact, so long that I actually have lost counts, but I think it's about 16 years. And when I started at Stanley Road, behaviour was a significant problem. It, it was very difficult to teach. So I'd be in the middle of teaching my English lesson with year sixes. And there would be uh, someone would look at each other across the room, give someone a dirty look, and there would be a fight in my classroom. And this this wasn't a sort of freak occurrence. This was daily. This was every day there would be fights in my classroom. And what would happen is, luckily, I had a teaching assistant. The teaching assistant wasn't really there to help support pupil learning. They were there to help me manage behaviour. Um, now, they, they would intervene often and, and help out, but sometimes we'd have to send our red card to one of our three learning mentors whose job it was to basically go into classes and remove children who were being really disruptive. Now, sometimes they got there in time and other times those children had kind of escaped already and decided to go on a little tour of the school. And the sort of soundtrack of my lessons in that time was often like the sound of um, children kicking radiators because that was the fun Mm. thing. Go around the school, kick the radiators and hide from the learning mentors. You know, a supply teacher would turn up for the day and we'd never see them again. You know, they, they just wouldn't want to come back. 
everything was really fraught and tense. So, um, you know, when we had assemblies, for example, every teacher was perched on the edge of their seat, <laughs> ready <laughs> to deal with something it, whenever it happened. You, you know, it, those were not great times. Results were really low. You know, staff retention was low. You know, people were nearly every term, it felt like an, a teacher moved on. So, yeah, it was really, really difficult, really, really challenging environment to work in. And, and you know, I'm honest and say that I, I've thought about leaving, you know, within a few weeks of working there, I thought I, I actually can't do this. However, stuck at it and things improved sort of incrementally over time. We got to a point, we had a new head teacher, uh, I think uh, Rebecca, about nine years ago, Rebecca came in and started to take behavior more seriously. And again, things improved there. So we Whenever we had visitors in school, they came and said, oh, behavior's great here. It's brilliant. And we had Ofsted come in and they said the same thing. You know, the, the behaviors are really good. And we thought, okay, this, this is good. Yeah, we, we don't really have much disruption in classes. We don't really have those fights very often. We do pretty well. And then we went to visit another school and it was a very sobering experience. We went to visit a school in London called Angel Oak Academy, which is part of the Step Academy Trust. It was uh, uh, the head teacher at the time was brilliant, as was uh, Kathy Locke. And we went to visit that school, myself and the head teacher. And we were hit in the face with the fact that our expectations were actually too low. Nobody likes to be faced with that. <laughs> but yeah, I can think of a couple of times in my career where we've, I've sort of thought, oh, and this was one of them. You know, we went around that school. And the children at school, it was in a very uh, deprived area. The children at school were amazing and the teachers were. The work they were doing was so ambitious and the atmosphere in the classrooms was so focused. You know, I thought we had focused behavior. I thought our behavior was good. And we went to Angel Oak and we realized, okay, we've got a way to go. You know, even in the younger classes, early years and year one, children were working in such a focused way, so quietly concentrating and focused on their work. So we came back uh, to Stanley Road and we started to introduce some more routines and systems that were helping to sort of like get bring ourselves up to that that high standard we'd seen. And as we introduced more and more of these things, what we were doing, kind of like when I look back now, I realised we were beginning to develop a behaviour curriculum. Now we, did, we didn't we didn't call it that. We didn't you know we, that, that wasn't the language we were using, but we were starting to think what can we teach the children about behaviour that's going to enable that smooth running of the school. And so, so we, we realized this is actually kind of like a behavior curriculum. Now that only occurred with that realization when we were sort of knee deep in the curriculum work that we've been doing and, and that I spoke about in the previous podcast. So the last five or six years, we've been really working hard on developing a knowledge-rich curriculum in, in all of our subjects. And as we were sort of working on geography and history and PE, we thought, actually, there's some parallels here. The, the way that we're thinking about these subjects can be applied to the way that we might think about behaviour. We can actually turn this into a curriculum, a taught curriculum for pupil behaviour. And some of the sort of principles that we based our curriculum on in our foundation subjects, for example, applied across the board. So I'll just talk a couple of those, if that's okay. So, so one was that we knew in our uh, subject, we wanted knowledge right at the heart of the curriculum. We knew there's the absolute central role that knowledge plays and, and the way that that contributes, all those tiny little pieces of knowledge contribute to that brilliant schema of knowledge that children have about whatever domain or topic that they're working in. So knowledge was at the heart of it. We were thinking, what knowledge do we need in a behaviour curriculum? And it was kind of like when we were thinking about PE, that it kind of clicked. When we were writing our PE curriculum, I remember at the time reading a blog by David Didow, which was, um, I think, called you can't, you can't Teach Skills or We Can't Teach Skills, something like that, I can't quite remember. Um, and in it, he had this formula, which was that skills equals knowledge plus practice. So he was arguing that you can't really teach skills directly, but you can teach knowledge and you can then practice applying it. And then that's the kind of the route to having those skills and, and being skilled. So when we were thinking about our PE curriculum, one thing we do, we were thinking about how we might develop people's catching skills. And, you know, you've pro we've probably all done that awful lesson where you go into the hall and you split everyone up into, you, everyone's got a partner and you say, you stand on that side of the hall and you stand on that side of the hall and I'm going to give you a ball and I'm going to say three, two, one, and you're going to throw it back and forth to each other. And, you know, like the minute you blow that whistle, it's absolute carnage and there's balls flying everywhere. They're stuck in the light fittings. You have no idea whose ball was whose. They're all over the floor. So we say, right, how do we improve pupils' catching skills? Well, there's a knowledge element here. 
And we can actually sort of teach this knowledge almost separately from the lesson. We could teach it in a classroom. We said, well, if you want to catch a ball, one thing you need to know is you need to know that you cup your hands. Okay, so your hands have to be in a particular position. You need to know which position to put them in. You need to know that you should watch the ball. Don't watch your hands. You, know, you need to know that you watch the ball as it's coming towards you. And you need to know that when you, you know, when you sort of catch it, bring it into your body and protect it so you don't drop it. So this is actually just knowledge that we can teach totally separate from a, a, a hole or whatever. And then obviously that's not sufficient. You know, you're not going to resolve any people's catching issues like that. But you, know, you then go into the hall and you say, right, remember this and this, what we taught you, now we can practice. Okay, and that, that sort of clicked and it made me think, you know, PE, although we think of it like it's a, a bit more of a practical skills-based subject maybe, actually there's this really important knowledge component. And we, we thought the same with behaviour, although behaviour kind of is like a skills type of thing, we might think of it as and we might perceive it that way. Actually, there's this knowledge component to it. So we wanted to set out the knowledge pupils needed to be able to you know, improve that uh, conduct around school, for example. So one of those things that we um, set out was something that we called uh, fantastic listening. Fantastic listening is the, the way that our pupils are called to attention in class and, and, and are attentive and ready to learn. So what we did with fantastic listening was we take the first four letters of fantastic, so F-A-N-T, and we kind of have this little acronym. It's actually based on a uh, Doug Lamov acronym called SLANT that people you might be familiar with, but we want to make it our own. So uh, fantastic listening, we said that pupils need to know what this fantastic listening looks like. So fantastic listening is the following. So I'll just, I'll tell you this. F is to face forward with your hands together. A is to always sit up straight. N is never interrupt. And T is to track the speaker to look at the person talking. So we teach that. We said, this is, this is what we mean when we say fantastic listening. And our, our teachers in school just say now, okay, fantastic listening, everyone. And boom, hands together, sitting up straight and ready to listen. And it's sort of an instantaneous thing. Now, we're not naive and we know that that doesn't guarantee those pupils are listening. You know, it's just kind of a proxy for listening. But, you know, I, I don't think we can actually directly control pupils listening. So what we need is something, is something that's going to help promote that. And I think the very fact that if everyone in the class is doing that, you're more likely to be able to focus because you're not going to be distracted by anything going on in the classroom, tapping pens and things. So in a way, you're sort of creating an, a, an environment where listening is more likely to happen. But again, you know, we, we're not naive and we know that doesn't actually guarantee listening. Mm. Um, so we set out that, that knowledge that pupils needed to know those things. And then obviously we practice it a lot. So knowledge was at the heart. The other thing that was really important uh, when we thought about our subject-specific curriculum was that granular detail was so important. We know that we can't just say to teachers when we're thinking about a geography curriculum, go and do a topic on rivers, you know, go and do volcanoes, and like, you, you sort out the rest. You, you decide what you're going to teach. We know that we have to be really granular. We have to set out exactly what um, knowledge content pupils should know about the volcanoes, about rivers, about whatever. It needs to be really precise so we can then build that knowledge systematically over time. Well, for us, we thought, actually, yeah, behaviour is like that. We need to be really, really precise. So instead of saying things like, oh, make sure you listen carefully, what does that mean? Or, or work hard or be kind or make sure you're polite. Well, what do those things mean? To me, they're the equivalent of saying to a teacher, do a topic on pirates. Like, it's too vague. So mm. we need to really, really drill down to that, that precise detail of what those are. So I'll talk about another one, if that's okay. Uh, Please. So one of the other things that we use in school is we use something called fantastic walking. It's not something we invented. It was um, a head teacher in Rochdale called Margaret Farrell, who, who uh, was in a, in a school that we knew. And uh, she developed this idea. And I think then Paul Dix, who's a sort of behavior consultant, picked that up, wrote about it in one of his books. What we do at, at Stanley Road is we have this thing called fantastic walking. And we know that if we just say to pupils, walk sensibly down the corridor, that means a different thing to every pupil. It probably means a different thing to every teacher in your school. So we break it down into these small steps. So fantastic walking means you're facing forwards, you're walking at a steady pace, you're in a straight line, you have your hands behind your back and you without talking. And that, that's what we mean. So we teach that. We, that. That's the granular detail of what fantastic walking means. Now, I think I'm going to have to just have a little sort of caveat jump back here a minute because what usually happens is people sort of nodding along, going facing forwards, walking at a steady pace, in a straight <laughs> line, hands behind your back, Sorry, hands behind your back. So uh, I know that can be a, like a point where people say, hang on, okay, that's not quite what I was expecting. 
Um, we wanted to be really precise about what was going on in our corridors. So go back to what my early experiences of life in that school were like, and the corridors were really chaotic. Children were barging down, hugging each other, banter, shouting. So we needed to, you know, to, to make sure that our corridors were really calm places so that we could carry out the core business of school, which is educating our children. We wanted to be really precise, and we thought that hands behind your back, is something that you are either doing or you're not doing. It's very, very clear. You, you, you know, it's quite binary in a way. Whereas other things we thought about, such as hands by your side or keep your hands to yourself, there's some room for <laughs> maneuver there. You know, that, that could mean all sorts of different things, maybe. Whereas it's kind of a bit more, a bit more um, clear. I mean, it, it might sound really oppressive. If you come to my school and you see it, what you see is these like lines of children, sort of serenely, like sort of swans gliding along the corridor. <laughs> And we tell them, puff your chest out, be proud to be at Stanley Road. They have their hands behind the back and they sort of walk just naturally along the corridor. And, and it's, it's brilliant to see. Uh, and, and it's make sure that our corridors are really calm so that pupils can, um, can learn. And we teach them that that's why we do it. We do it for these reasons so that we, everyone can carry on learning in school. You know, that granular detail makes it very, very explicit to pupils and to staff, what's expected. Right, and I, I promise you, I'm gonna finish this answer in a minute. <laughs> the last thing I wanna say is just about kind of behavior policies and curriculum. So imagine you start a job in a new school and you want to ask, you wanna find out how to teach maths. Like what, what are we teaching for maths? So you go to the maths leader and you say, um, okay, can you give me some help? I'm, I, want, I want to get started with my maths teaching. And they say, oh yeah, we've got this policy. It tells you like broadly how, you know, the sort of approach we take for teaching maths. Okay, that's brilliant. Thank you. You say, okay, but what am I actually supposed to teach? Oh, we don't have a curriculum, but we have a policy. And, and I feel the same, you know, that's crazy when you can't imagine that. You know, I feel the same about behavior curriculum. And now, now we've sort of been uh, immersed in, in using this and, and, and uh, sort of enacting it in school. A behavior policy without the curriculum behind it is probably gonna, not going to do the job as well. I think we need that, that curriculum document so we actually know the details of what we need to teach children about the way to behave in school. Lovely. And a little reflection there, Steve. Andrew brought back a memory, actually, of when we worked together. And Steve and I were assistant heads and we were all right. I don't think we had it quite figured out yet, but we were doing some quite nice things there. But Steve, I, I distinctly remember you and I realizing that we needed to in some way codify behavior we don't we, we yes. definitely weren't at the stage of uh, behavior curriculum that's come many years later but I remember us saying we were talking about things like walking in corridors and going we have to be really precise about what we mean by that and do you remember we got a couple of volunteers like we? We, 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 we did videos that we could mm. show in assembly because it bothered Steve and I I think we were key stage leads Steve was lower yeah. school and I was upper school it bothered us that a lot of children, you could say, I'll oh, walk, please. But they didn't really know exactly what you meant by that. And a lot of what you're talking about there, you, 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 you jest that some people might think it sounds oppressive. I think some people will think that. And But but just for reassurance, as someone who's now trialled a behaviour curriculum, mm -hmm. and as looks a tiny bit different in places to yours, but you're demystifying what you want from young people. And there, there's nothing worse for a child than to do something wrong, not really know it's wrong or it's wrong in our eyes and us get cross about that. What we're mm -hmm. doing here is saying the, these are the habits, as you say, that are going to serve you well and create a, a calm, orderly environment for everybody. And I love that you said how important it is to, to articulate that and say why we do it. We're not trying to create robots here. We're trying to create children that take personal responsibility and know how their good behaviours impact themselves and others. But yeah, when we demystify it and we codify it, we just level the playing field for everybody and, and, and not just those children who are already getting those kind of expectations at home and know, know how we pleasantly walk down a corridor. Now everyone knows and it's, and it's crystal clear and that just seems fair. I don't know what you think, Steve. No, and I was just thinking at the time, that's why we felt video was an awesome tool to, to show all our children, particularly our key stage one, yes, but actually... The children we got to do the video was probably one of the toughest year groups we've ever had behaviorally <laughs> anyway. If I'm right, Russell, we always had a how not to do it yeah. <laughs> and how to do it. So it was a bit of a uh, an experience for the children to show how badly it could be. And we highlighted some poor examples that 
teachers already spoken about that within the school. Like, like you say, all that banter when they're grabbing each other behind the with their hands and they're hugging and running down the corridor. We kind of showed that as examples of what we see uh, as a staff and then how it could be if we really uh, explicitly said, this is how we do walk around our school. And the reasons behind it, you, I think with the videos, we actually had a really good justification then to show why we're lo- we're doing what we are doing, um, and sure, it didn't solve every every possible cause of behaviour at our school, but it probably heightened it to to know what was wrong and also to think about how we can make it right for uh, our children and for the staff. So, yeah, it's a good task, but obviously, behaviour curriculum has gone a lot further, and that's what we that's what we probably needed at the time, but we weren't aware of us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, now. Andrew, one thing I'd say is beautiful about your behaviour curriculum is that it's really reflected in a clear documentation, like any other area of the curriculum would be. Now, you've spoken about a couple of examples, but in that document, you outline the specific things that children need to know when it comes to behaviour. Can you give us some more examples of the kinds of know that statements that you've included and perhaps some justification as to why they were chosen in the first place. Okay, yeah, of course. So I've given you a flavour of a few of them, but um, yeah. I'll talk a bit more about um, teaching good manners, I think. Mm. Now, I went to a place called Betty's Tea Room over half term. And Betty's Tea Room is a sort of Yorkshire institution. So if you want to <laughs> um, if you want to imagine that you're sort of uh, Miss Marple or Hercule Poirot, <laughs> you go to Betty's Tea Room and you, you quite happily pay five pounds for a cup of tea because it feels like you're in an Agatha Christie novel. <laughs> uh, you go there and, um, and, and the staff there, you feel special. You, you are treated so well. They are so polite. You know, the way that they, they greet you and guide you to your seat and take your order and all those things. The, the staff have got this amazing uh, interaction with the, the customers there. Uh, and you, f- you feel like you're in a pretty special place. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that that doesn't happen uh, by chance. That's uh, Those staff will have all had training in how, how you deal with customers and, and the way that you um, hold yourself, the way that you walk around the, the floor of the tea room and the and the, the things that you say the, those things will be probably very explicitly taught to, to those uh, to those members of staff and so why wouldn't we want this for our pupils so we um introduced something that we called steps to politeness and it's an idea that we we got from head teacher um, sort of behavior expert barry smith and it's another another acronym acronyms are, are quite handy to help us remember these things so to give you a flavour of what the sort of behaviour curriculum document is like, because often I talk about this and people say, yeah, but what does it actually look like? Like, what are you actually saying in it? How have you worded it? Uh, so I'll just, I'll just read this section from it about how we teach manners. And then I will go back and sort of go through some of the points, really. So so we, we use these know that statements, as you said. So we say that pupils should know that. We use steps to politeness at Stanley Road to make sure we're always polite to each other. They know that STEP stands for, so each letter stands for, so the first one is Sir and Miss. Pupils know they must use Sir and Miss when talking to members of staff. T is thank you. Pupils know they should say thank you when they receive something or someone does something nice for them. E is excuse me, and pupils know that they should say excuse me if someone is in the way. Mm. P is please. Pupils know they should always say please when they're asking for something. And S is for smile, which is pupils know they should be positive and upbeat when talking to adults and each other. We say that they know that they should say good morning, uh, like I said before, uh, good morning, sir, good afternoon, miss, etc. if spoken to. We also say we want pupils to know that it's polite to ask questions such as, how are you today, miss? Have you had a good morning, sir? Did you have a good weekend, miss? And this is my favourite, comment on the weather. <laughs> Know that it's important to have good manners so that people act politely back to you and have a positive impression of you. So those are the, the not know that knowledge statements around good manners. Now, as I said, I just want to go back a couple of points. I think most of them are fairly self-explanatory, but it, I think it's that explicitness of when you, you know, we don't assume everyone knows when to say please, when to say thank you, when to say excuse me. So so we need, we, we want to be really explicit about that. The the one that sometimes like catches people out a bit here is that is the last s and that's the smile one uh, i want to make it really clear that smile doesn't literally mean smile it doesn't mean while people's wander around with some, a sort of an inane grin on their face <laughs> hold off for not, for not smiling. it's just a, a way of sort of summarizing an attitude that you might have in school that you are kind of positive and you're upbeat and yeah 
what exactly is that what it's that warm smiling and you talk to people with the sort of a smile in your voice it doesn't mean you have to grin but you know you just got that nice upbeat feel and that's we think that's really important to help children be polite and as i said there we, we say why we you know the reason that we teach this is so people will act politely to you and they have a positive impression of you it's a good way of making a positive first impression you know that, that's one of the examples and and the reason that we we had that in the curriculum is not because all our pupils were really impolite before but we realized actually we want everyone to be at a really high standard we want them all to be amazingly polite why, why wouldn't we want every pupil to to be polite around school so one of the criticisms i've seen of, of smile is that people say well are you kind of forcing children to be upbeat and maybe they've had um, a difficult morning something's happened to them and and you're sort of trying to sort of wash over that and sort of like, well, you know, just be upbeat and get on with it. Well, I can understand people's concerns about that, but we found the opposite to be true, that when the default mode in school is to be upbeat and positive, if a pupil comes in and they're not, that's a much bigger indicator that maybe something, uh, they need some extra support or something's happened mm. to know about. Whereas if half your school comes in uh, with their sort of heads down and sort of you say, good morning to them, say, morning, you don't know who's having a difficult day or not. So actually the opposite is true. We find that it helps us really identify any pupils who might need that little bit of extra support. Now, these know that statements and this, the, the, the curriculum set up like this is all available on our, on our school website. So people can go and, and, and have a look at like what these statements actually look like. But crucially, it's in the curriculum section of the website. You know, it's not in a separate yeah. behavior section. It's just part, it's just on that. So if people want to find out a bit more, some of these know that statements on there, then uh, that's a good place to look. Great. And it's such a helpful starting point to go and look at what Andrew's school has mm. done with that and then make it work for you. So for example, we, we've, we've really use the Stanley Road behaviour curriculum to help support ours there are bits that look different but we have these four values in the school and and like a lot of schools they they can very easily be meaningless words that are plastered above a hall somewhere you know on a wall in the hall somewhere or on a display but in the way that you had described Andrew we really wanted to unpick that so one of them is respect what do we mean by respect what does that look like as a set of behaviors and actions and we like to think that everyone intuitively knows this stuff but mm -hmm. when you articulate it and then you do these things sometimes you discover their worth and their their beauty by doing them so manners is a great example of that so I might not naturally I might not be one of those children that just naturally knows to say good morning sir how are you or good morning miss how are you but in doing that behavior, I discover its beauty, mm -hmm. its worth. I see the other person smile and light up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I challenge any teacher in the world. You know, I stand out on gate duty in the morning and, a, I don't know, a seven-year-old comes past me and goes, good morning, Mr. Pearson, how are you? I challenge you not to feel a million dollars like you do every <laughs> time you go to that tea room. And I light up and then I reciprocate. And then how good does that make that young person feel? And what a, what a tone we've set for that child's day. And I always think to myself, now imagine that child gets warm. Well, they spread warmth to every adult, but every adult they encounter is, is equally as warm and lovely all day, every day. Gosh, what have we, we've created a climate now, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, that goes so much beyond compliance, which I think is the danger people think this yeah. this is all about yeah. just mindless compliance. People are fostering, creating and enjoying a, a, be a beautiful conditions for learning and for feeling a sense of belonging and, 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 and feeling like a big family. And when I've got reception children turning to each other and going, well, that's not the Willowbrook way. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know we've created a culture now that is, yeah, it's amazing. It's a beautiful mm, thing. It's brilliant to hear. Yeah, so it's really inspired our work. And, you know, just like you, we felt that behaviour had come on some way. And in our two Ofsteads ago, despite not being the best outcome we talked about in the last episode, but two two ago, behaviour was described as good. And, and we were mm. kind of like, well, that was maybe slightly fortunate. You know, it was all right. Yeah. Where this time there was some really, really supportive, kind comments about behaviour that really recognised the kind of cultural depth to which that had improved and children mm -hmm. talking about their school with pride and that's when we go beyond 
the surface level behavior and we're talking about those attitudes to school that are just so much so much better now you've touched on this slightly in your, your comments about kind of compliance and so on whenever we talk about behavior it, it can definitely evoke a kind of an emotional response from people and i understand that for a whole host of reasons and i think one of those reasons is perhaps people worry that quite strict or clear or specific behavior guidelines can jar with an inclusive approach to school life what's your view on that andrew and have you been able to retain a really inclusive approach in your school whilst implementing this very clear curriculum yeah, like you I, I understand people's reaction to this because you sort of you hear about the rules and, and systems like this and, and you, you the word that comes to mind is sound strict and then the mm. the idea that we have about strict comes from i don't know you like you, you conjure up these images of like dickensian classrooms mm. or yeah. you know, the demon headmaster or like if you're old like me you might remember mr bronson from grange hill but these teachers are really sort of strict. So I, I get where that worry comes from. For us, it's sort of a bit counterintuitive in a way. We found that the tighter we became around behavior, and the higher standards that we had around behavior, we actually developed these calm classrooms, peaceful, focused rooms where children feel incredibly safe. And we've sort of said this already, haven't we? That when pupils know where they stand, they feel safe. They know the routines of that class. They come in every day. They they know that they're not going to be laughed at if they get an answer wrong in class because the culture mm. of the school is, is, is such that that doesn't happen. They know that when the teacher says fantastic listening, it, it, the class goes quiet and everyone sits and listens. And they know those routines. They feel safe. And it helps to reduce that anxiety that might trigger difficult behavior in some children. So we found that the, the tighter we became with these things, the the warmer school became and the more included and, and involved those children became we, we uh, many years ago when i first started school we were a hearing impairment resource provision for the local authority and we used to have deaf children um, in the school and actually it was really difficult for them to learn in those classrooms that were you know i could use the word busy uh, as, as a sort of a nice way of saying it but like like noisy classrooms, chaotic classrooms, they are, they were not good environments for those children to be learning in. They needed calm and quiet classrooms to be able to hear. Now, one of the things in our curriculum document, if you, if you do look at it, is, is we have a section called, which is adaptations. And we, we make adaptations when we need to sensibly for children. So, for example, you know, we, I've talked about fantastic walking already. We might have children in school who use a walking frame to move around school. And they can't do fantastic walking like everyone else. Well, does that mean we, we don't need fantastic walking? We shouldn't have that as a rule because it's perfectly fine that they can't do that. We accommodate that. And the, the fact that everyone else in school walks in a very calm, orderly way means that those corridors are completely safe for those children and they can move around without any concerns or worries about being bumped into and knocked and so on. We know that some children are not going to be able to meet those expectations for, for a variety of reasons. And I don't, you know, no, we could go into those in great depth, yeah. but I'm not of great interest at the moment. So, you know, we know that, that different children have developmental delays and, and, and other concerns. But so we make adaptations to them. But actually, we feel that that warm, safe environment that, 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 that we've created means that those pupils are happier, they feel safer, and they're able to be involved in the lesson. Lovely. And I think, you know, something, an impression I get from something you said earlier is there's a way of implementing those firm, clear boundaries with such warmth and kindness from the staff. You know, you, you gave the example of the child that forgot to say, good morning, sir, back to you. And you, you just warmly sort of, oh, remember, you know, it doesn't have to be, you're, you're not bellowing at them for not, mm -hmm. not doing that. And I think that, that warm correction that, that children get that, we're supporting them to behave a certain way because it's in their interest and everybody else's and it, it's about how that makes us all feel is really key here because I think where a lot of anxiety around uh, sort of very strict or as they're sometimes described very zero tolerance uh, policies as you hear is about the consequence and the way that they're addressed for mucking up so to speak that's where the anxiety comes from not from the rule itself oh, absolutely yeah uh, and and, and it, it's these interactions are really warm and mm. we don't have shouting we, no. we don't have teachers shouting you know 
to go back to Fantastic Walk for a moment. Our pupils walk down the corridor and, and you know, we're as senior leaders, we're sort of on the corridors, seeing how things are going. And, and oh, we see children walking past and we say to them, fantastic walking. It's fantastic walking, everyone. If a child doesn't, isn't doing it for some reason, we say, fantastic walking. And they go, oh, yeah. uh -huh. and it's done. It's the same script. It's the same words. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> it's just a different time. Stop shouting. Why are you talking? You don't hear that. You know, you, you just hear this uh, this positive praise for, for those children who are doing it right. And just those like gentle corrections. And often we just assume they've forgotten. So we just gently remind them. And uh, like I said, with the same good morning, we often have a, a little laugh and they, they go, oh, yeah, sorry, you know, and, and correct themselves. Yeah. And as I'm listening, Andrew, I am imagining leaders and teachers wanting to know about the how. Because like any curriculum area, effective implementation is vital. So my question to you is, how did you get your behaviour curriculum to come alive in the classrooms and the corridors of your school? And what were some of the biggest obstacles to achieving this consistency in behaviour you've clearly got? So, so how, how it comes alive? Well, the, the most important thing is, you know, once we, we've written this curriculum, is the, the teaching of it mm. and, and the opportunity to practice things. So. Um, in that first week of term, we really go to town and teach that curriculum really explicitly. We treat it like it's another subject. And then we review that each, each half term as we come back. We have lots of different ways of reviewing it. I'll, I'll perhaps come on to those in a moment. And then people sometimes will say, well, okay, yeah, you teach it. What's it what does it mean, teaching the behaviour mm. curriculum? Well, I know your listeners will be familiar with Rosenstein's principles of instruction, uh, these mm. sort of generic principles that would apply across, you know, any subject, PE, science, art, they apply into teaching behavior in the same way. So, for example, um, we break things down into small steps. The way the curriculum is written means that it's in these small uh, granular steps. So, for example, if um, in reception, children are sort of new to school and they're just learning these routines for the first time, when we're teaching them something like the fantastic walking, say, we don't expect them to do all of that all together uh, at the straight way. You know, we will teach them one thing. So we'll, 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 the teacher will choose something, maybe walking in a straight line or with the hands behind the back or the quietly aspect. And then we'll add in the next step. So we slowly build up. So we get to those, get those brilliant routines, but we, we make sure that we do it step by step. So we're not sort of overloading children too much. And we use models uh, like you described their brilliant idea of, of videoing children. You know, using models like that means that um, you can then show the class or show, show the school how these routines and, and uh, systems work around the school. But, you know, we like like everyone, we, we all do that. Oh, look at this brilliant city. You know, this is fantastic <laughs> listening here. Look at this. What a great example. And like, I'll model it. I'll act it out. I'm going to do this fantastic listening, too. And, you know, so so we show those good models. We have scaffolds, so we would, um, if it's a difficult, if it's something difficult, something new, simple things like just having the the sequence of steps that we want pupils to practice on the board, you know, so we'll write them down. Okay, so let's say we're going to um, learn a routine for collecting our books in. Well, let's write it down. So this is the this is the routine. Step one, the person at the back of the row passes it to the person in front of them. Step two, that person then passes their book and the book they've just received to the next person. And step three, and then at the end, the books are at the front and the person at the front puts them in the tray or something. So we would have it written out step by step. It's a scaffold. And then we might take that away, like a, a faded worked example. So I might say, take the last two or three steps away and say, okay, we know the first few steps. Let's see, can we do the whole thing without the final steps? So we, you know, we're using those scaffolds to make sure people get that chance to practice and, you know, and, and achieve that success, basically. Rosenchan, you know, talks about asking lots of questions. At the start of the year, one of the things I, you know, I remember this vividly, walking around uh, school uh, in September, first day of, of school, and I was walking past the year six and year five classrooms, and, and those children had their mini whiteboards out, and the teacher was saying, if someone's in the corridor blocking you away, what do you say? Write it on your board. Shh, excuse me. Okay, brilliant. You know, three, we, have a, we have a system for showing whiteboards, of course we do. So it's called someone's <laughs> it. So three, two, one, chin it. The board goes under your chin, not waving around over the top of your head. <laughs> so, you know, so we, we, we ask questions. What does the F stand for in uh, fantastic listening? For example, you know, children are answering questions. So we can check that they know the common knowledge. Now we know that that's not sufficient and we have to practice it. Uh, I mentioned before, we review it. We review it every um, half term that we come back, but we also do ongoing reviews. So for example, in assembly, and we always have a focus 
on one of the aspects of the curriculum. So we, one of the things we did is we turned the curriculum document into a series of posters, really simple posters, like just literally, it's just sort of like the, the, the statements just slightly reworded. And we have about 30 or 40 of these posters. And in each assembly, we'll just say, we'll put one up on the, on the board and say, right, let's have a look at this one. Let's just talk about wh- why we have this, why, why this is part of our, the way we do things at Stanley Road. So always coming back to, to reviewing that. We can't assume that you know, we did it in September, so it's going to last all year. Tom Bennett actually has a really good four-part four sequence, really, for teaching behaviour explicitly that's in his uh, brilliant book, Running the Room. And, and, and if anyone's interested in behaviour, that, that's the, one of the books to read. It's a, a, a brilliant book. So he says uh, there's four aspects to teaching behaviour explicitly. The first is to identify the routines you want to see. For us, that's writing that curriculum. Then number two is communicate in detail your expectations. So that's the teaching in the classroom. We need to teach it very clearly. And also it's also the communication amongst all staff. So we all uh, are singing from the same hymn sheet. That's really important that we have everyone on board. You practice the routines until everyone can do them. So they've got that knowledge. They practice and practice until it becomes a habit. It's automatic. And then the final step is we reinforce, maintain, and patrol the routines constantly. So we have to make sure that we keep on top of those things and we're always reviewing, revisiting them, and making sure they're happening whenever we're around school. So, you know, I really like that sort of four-part thing. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. In terms of obstacles, you hit, you hit the nail on the head. It's consistency. Getting consistency is the, is the real challenge when we're trying to implement something like this because we need everyone, everyone doing the same things here. So we need every teacher, every teaching assistant, every member of office staff, every member of the site staff, uh, every member of the kitchen staff, the midday supervisors. We all need to be on the same page. That's where it's going to be really, really successful if to, to get a a behavior curriculum to work or anything like that. So getting staff buy-in at the start is like one of your first challenges, isn't it? It's one of the first things that's difficult. And when we've introduced things, I mean, I can, we often laugh about actually the moment we introduced fantastic walking and the tumbleweed that rolled across the staff room <laughs> as, yeah. as we said, this is what we're going to do. And, and mm. skeptical about it. Um, what we said was give it a try. We'll try it and we'll see, we'll see how it goes because we were convinced it would make a difference. That kind of proof is in the pudding that is, is a big deal when you know, you've got to, you've got to see those improvements. So, you know, we, we did that fantastic walking within a week. People said, this is brilliant. The children are just walking into my room, sitting down and I can teach. I'm not having to deal with incidents that have happened in the corridor. I'm not having to calm the class down. They are just coming in nice and calm, sitting down. And I just start my lesson. So I've saved all this time automatically. And so that, that's brilliant then because then then you've got a bit of trust because people think oh this thing worked this like crazy idea that they they suggested actually had brilliant a brilliant impact so then the next time you you want to say right now we're going to try this you're hopefully you're going to get more people on board because Mm. they've seen how it's worked before how these things work so you know when we wrote the curriculum what we really did was sort of just try to sort of as you describe it codify what we already did in many ways and we didn't we didn't sort of introduce loads of new things all at once there's one or two things that were new when we wrote it and but the other things were things that we were doing already because you know I, th- I think that would be a huge challenge trying to sort of change lots and lots and lots all at once um i think incrementally is, is easier but i know some schools you know need to have sudden impact so i, I can understand that too so staff buy-in that's the what's one obstacle another obstacle uh, it might seem a, a bit counterintuitive again is actually Good behavior can be an obstacle. (laughs) What I mean by that that is I worked in a school where one of the rules was that we had um, a lining up order in class. So children had a specific order that they lined. Every class had their own unique order. So I went to cover a class one day and and I said to this class, "Okay, right. Line up, please. In lining up order. And they said, we don't have a lining up order. Oh, okay, Right. What happens then? Oh, miss just says line up and we'd line up. Okay. Right, so fine. I went to speak to the teacher afterwards and said, okay, I was in your class today and, and I asked them to line up in the lining order. They said they didn't have a lining order. Said, What's that about? And he said, oh, this class, they're amazing. Their behavior is so good. I don't need to have a lining up order because they can just do it so brilliantly. So I said, okay, that's really nice for you. That's brilliant. However, 
maybe you need to have the lining up order for the PPA teacher who comes in or the supply teacher or the midday supervisor who's going to sort of take your children out to play or, or whatever. So it's maybe not for you. And that can work to sort of undermine the systems. If you think, well, I don't need that bit. My class don't need this. Because mm. what you immediately do is you make everyone else in schools seem like they're really mean. Like, you know, when yeah. there's that class comes to the next teacher and the teacher says, right, this is your lining up order. And they say, whoa, hang on. Yeah. We didn't have this last year. Well, this is this is not. Yeah. Um, so you sort of undermine that. So that, so that can be a, a, an issue. And the other thing is it's sort of similar, I suppose, is people want to add extra elements in, add their own twist to it. Okay. And, and I understand that. Things like point systems raffle tickets for good behavior people want to say oh yeah i'll, I'll follow the curriculum and i'll uh, sorry i'll follow that the behavior policy say but i want to add my own like i'm going to put this extra thing in usually uh, i think from my experience and talking to people it's usually when things aren't working very well and people are then looking for something else that might do the job so they introduce like the, these kind of point systems and raffles tickets stuff now i don't uh, have a, a major problem with those things However, I do wonder sometimes about pupil motivation when, you, when you're working in a system where you're, where you're giving out points. Because what we want is pupils to do the right thing because it's the right thing, because they know that's the right thing and because that's who they are. They are people. They are the sort of children who do the right thing all the time because they just know it's right. And uh, I've had the experience where we had uh, class dojo points, actually, and um, and I asked the pupil to, can you just tidy up my uh, reading corner, please? And they said, can I have a dojo point? Mm. Okay, so so something's not working. <laughs> mm. You know, yeah. we're sort of bartering for points. Um, so, I mean, again, these things sort of work to undermine uh, behavior systems in a way. So, again, the, the teacher next year who doesn't do the raffle ticket and doesn't give you a prize at the end of the week if you behave well – uh, suddenly again appears to be the meanie so you know those are some of some of the sort of obstacles that i think can crop up when you're trying to implement and get that high level of consistency that high level of fidelity to a single approach those are things that can cause problems yeah, yeah that's a great answer great implementation strategy right there i was uh reflecting then when you were talking about the uh the lining up we when we decided to codify various things that we do that are kind of part of our core business we were talking about uh, how we how we get the children to stop and be ready to, to to listen and we had been using the walkthroughs book at the time which is great and it talks about signal pause insist and you know having a signal that you you use in your in your class and um, we had these cpd sessions in in groups and ahead of it me and the assistant head sort of said right it's going to come up in here whether we should just have a, a signal that that we all use and we're not sure people will really be too down for that because I think a lot of people have the reaction that your teacher did. Well, they, they, you know, what I do works for me. The kids like it. You know, maybe it's one of those kind of call and respond things. And, you know, various people were doing different things. And uh, I said to them, well, I tell you, as an example that really niggles me, which was last year when I covered Dada's class when they were off poorly for a week, I, I can really remember a challenging class. And I remember... I remember for days not being able to get them to stop quickly for me, you know, finding that really, really frustrating. And I turned to the TA after about three days and said, look, how does the teacher normally get them to stop? And he said, oh, there's a, there's a tambourine in the top drawer. Uh, and I didn't have a clue about this. So I get this thing out and shake it and they all immediately stop really respectfully, like sort of Pavlov's dogs. And I, and I thought to myself, this, th th this isn't right. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have had to stumble upon the tambourine uh, by accident in order to get them to stop. So I, I shared this with the assistant heads. I said, I really do think we need something consistent, even if people aren't too sure. And we've just got to have faith that they'll see the benefits of that quite quickly so we we went for the sort of five four three two one hand gesture which we liked because we can remove the verbal aspect of that quite quickly and it's just the gesture so we suggested that and there was a slight adjustment in the early years where they would the children would also sort of be hands-free at that point and twinkle yeah. their fingers at them because that's quite useful when <laughs> when children are fiddling and um so we gave it a go and within within weeks the teachers were fine with it but the people that really appreciated it were our teachers that were doing PPA cover across the school. 
yeah. who are saying now I can walk into reception, nursery, year six, and I go five, four, three, two, one, and they're all ready and they're watching me. And in fact, I'm not even getting mm-hmm. getting to one. And that was just so rewarding to hear. And as SLT, we do quite a lot of PPA coming. It was the same experience for us. And even better than that was supplier teachers coming in, mm-hmm. covering five, six, seven classes a day sometimes for particular reasons for meetings or whatever. And going, it was great in every class. I'm coming back here. You know, please have me back. <laughs> and, and and that just wasn't the sort of thing we we always had happen in the past. So yeah, yeah, similar reflection there. Well, you've talked a lot about impact, so don't feel you have to go into great depth here, Andrew. But I was curious about whether there were any particular examples of impact in terms of you've talked about the impact on behavior and stuff well-being things but what about people's learning academic outcomes and obviously their well-being and their happiness as well yeah i mean we've seen that you know we've seen this change in school uh, and you know, as, as sort of senior leaders we, we, we think it's had a really significant impact However, I'm not blind to the fact that senior leaders who've spent hours and hours sweating over this stuff are not the best people to judge necessarily. <laughs> I, I always like to look at what, what other people think, what, what visitors to school think and so on. So um, we had um, a visitor in school who was from the Salvation Army and was, uh, was delivering an assembly to our pupils um, about food banks. And it was just a normal assembly, we thought to us. And afterwards, he came up to me and said, I've done this assembly in loads of different schools across the Northwest. I've never been in a school like yours. He said, every pupil just sat still and listened throughout <laughs> the whole assembly. He says, normally they're turning around, fidgeting, shuffling about. He says, but I've never known anything like it. You know, it's, it's like comments like that. And I think, okay, we're, we're onto something here. Uh, when we introduce steps to politeness, one of the things, like I said, we like to do is, is make sure everyone's involved. So I went to speak to our school cook uh, and sort of say, oh, this is what we're doing now. So we, we sort of implemented it. And then a week later, I got around to sort of going to speak to her. So I went to her and said, oh, right, we're, we're doing this thing, steps to politeness. We expect pupils to say please and thank you when, they, you know, when they're collecting their food and so on. And she said, I wondered what was going on. She said, <laughs> it's been amazing. She says, all week, all we've heard is please this, thank you this. And she says, every pupil. He's doing this and and you know it's like that sort of thing you think okay this is making a big difference now you asked about pupil well-being i mean what i see now is people coming into school smiling happy in fact one of the things we say is we feel like we gave them permission to be polite and happy and upbeat those children who were a little bit maybe sullen and, and had their heads down well they're not anymore because actually they they quite like coming in and saying good morning sir good morning sir and and saying yeah have you, have you had a good morning, sir? And they actually like that a, a lot. And and people are coming in with this like really buzzing and, and happy. And that certainly wasn't the case 16 years ago. You had kind of two options. You either just kept your head down or you decided you're going to be like top dog. Our people's coming really happy, confident. It's brilliant to see. And then in terms of, of outcomes, I mean, you know, it's hard to say, but I know that we had we have lots of visitors um, and I remember one said something and, and it really struck with me and he, he, he w- watched a bit of a lesson he, he just sort of said oh he says your children learn more in one lesson than ours do in a week mm, he's watched wow. a, a maths lesson or something he says because it's all so focused that they're they're absolutely concentrating and the full lesson is used there's no disruption uh, you don't you don't see any disruption. It, it's, it's really seamless, really smooth. You just get through so much content and the children are all keeping up. Uh, they're not getting distracted and, and drifting off and falling behind. Just the whole class is all keeping up and they've got through all this work and it would take us ages to get through all that. So that's really nice. A really, really nice yeah. comment. Amazing. Beautiful. Um, this is, chat has been amazing. Uh, I've got one final question, if I may, Andrew, because... I imagine that there'll be teachers listening who don't have whole school influence over behaviour, but who are equally looking for advice that they can apply in their own classrooms. Are there any tips you would give to a teacher who is looking to achieve great behaviour in their classrooms, but doesn't have that whole school influence? Yeah. And I mean, everything I've said has been about whole school, hasn't it? You know, it's going to work a thousand times better if you have everyone on board. But of course, you know, as you say, people are not always in that situation. So I've been talking about whole school behavior curriculum, but there's absolutely no reason why you can't have your class 
behavior curriculum that you you can think carefully about those routines and systems that you want in your class and i think there's real power in writing it down and being really explicit what you want to do so it can be routines for what happens in the morning when pupils come in how you call them to attention how you hand out books, how you collect books in, how you line up, how you go to dinner, all those things. You you write those down and sort of teach it in the way that we've talked about here really explicitly and practice those things. I think that can make a big difference. Other things I would suggest, um, I've mentioned Tom Bennett's brilliant book, Running the Room, but I would also recommend Teach Like a Champion, the Doug Lamov book. And people aren't familiar with that. What Doug Lamov did was he observed hundreds and hundreds of lessons and looked at what, what teachers did in the classroom that seemed to make a real difference. And I guess for me, like the masterstroke in, in this book is that he he codified and named these techniques. And, and these are sort of techniques that you know, experienced teachers have sort of managed to um, accumulate over the years and do almost without thinking. And he made this really explicit and sort of gave these things some names. So that book's full of brilliant techniques. I'll just, I'll go through two or three of them just quickly now, because uh, I think they're really good ones. So one of the techniques is called Brighton Lines. And Brighton Lines is about making a very clear demarcations between one activity in your classroom and and, and something different that you want pupils to do. So if you um, were had done some teaching and you wanted pupils to begin their work, instead of just saying, oh, okay, has everyone got it? Yeah, you're okay, right? Well, begin when you're ready, you know, make sure, oh, yes, you need to sharpen your pencils, fine. No, okay, well, come back and, and start. So that's not that's not the best way to start that. What uh, Dr. Mov observed was teachers doing this. Uh, it would be something like, um, okay, everyone, show me your pens and your hands ready to work. So children would hold them from the air. And you say, right, okay, I want you to start the task in three, two, one, there's a dramatic pause there. Three, two, one, go. <laughs> that three, two, one, go. Guess what happens? Every child's head goes down. Boom. Yeah. And they start because there's something about, <laughs> about that that makes you want to just like, I need to do something quick, like three, go. <laughs> so pupils then begin work straight away. Okay. So you've made a really clear demarcation. You've not got that faffing about going to sharpen the pencils and whatever else they need to do. It's clear. This is when we start. And Things like the five, four, three, two, one that you've described, Russell, you know, are ways of sort of stopping that work and then moving to the next phase. So making it really clear which part of the lesson we're in. Another one is uh, called Pastor's Perch. And Pastor is a teacher that uh, Doug had observed. He always moved to a particular part of the classroom when he was teaching or when he wanted to monitor the class. And when sort of Doug was talking to him afterwards, he said, I, I, Oh, yeah, I go to this position because I, then I can see everyone really clearly. So it's often in, in a corner of the classroom and you can just see over everyone. You can sort of monitor that class really easily. So our teachers have their pastor's perch. They, they go to a certain spot. They know a really the best position in class so that they can see. We, we all know that if there's any behavior or disruption going to happen, it's going to be when you're not looking. Okay, it's going to be when you've you've you're turning around, you're shuffling your papers, you're trying to you know you're trying to find something that, for the lesson. That's when something tends to happen, doesn't it? So if you you can you've got that brilliant sort of sight over everyone, you can you can make sure that doesn't happen, and that's often goes alongside another technique called be seen looking, or sometimes it's called radar. And be seen looking is where you kind of make a big deal of looking. <laughs> you just stand there. Uh, in your pastor's perch but you actually sort of it's quite hard to model this on a podcast but you you move your head left and right you know you're looking you're, you're obviously checking it's almost like a pantomime you know it's like i'm just gonna really check everyone's really doing the work <laughs> uh, and so you know combining those two things means pupils know that okay I, you know, I need to be cracking on here the last one I'll, I'll mention there's many of these um is something called means of participation and means of participation is basically you explain to the class the way that you want them to participate or join in with that lesson before you ask them to do the thing that you want to do. So it's usually just something that you would, the way that you would phrase things. So if you want to ask a question in class, instead of just asking the question, what you would say something like, with a quiet hand in the air, who can tell me what's five times five, whatever. So you, you front load the instruction. So the first thing they hear is, with a quiet hand in the air and you're mm. you're aiming to reduce the chance of people shouting out honey there and you can also use it for other you could say things like if you want pupils to sort of think about giving a, a really clear answer you might say right in a full sentence who can tell me what's the uh, capital of france you know whatever so pupils know this is how i'm going to do it 
this time I'm going to do it in your books. I want you to answer the first five questions. Go. You know, you start preempting that and making sure pupils then know exactly what's expected of them. Uh, so those are just some, there's lots of other strategies like that, and they're, they're really good ones to use. So, so, I mean, my top tips, I guess, are you write, write your own behavior curriculum if you can and do a bit of reading. Tom Bennett's book is brilliant, and that Teach Like a Champion. I'll, I'll just say as a sort of a last comment on that one was um, I did some training for some um, skit students recently about behavior, and, and I showed them those two books. And one of the students said, those books saved my life. <laughs> she said, I was with this class last year and really challenging. And those books saved my life. So, so oh. there you go. That's, you can't get better endorsement than that. There's some fantastic okay. tips. Yeah. And, uh, and if I can ice that beautiful cake of tips that you've just done, only because it's so fresh in my head from something that happened to me today. I was lucky to cover year six today. And we had an assembly and for some reason, uh, one of the children that was due to collect a certificate couldn't, couldn't go up and get it. But her classmate was already up there. And I just saw him point to her, smile and say, I'll get it. <laughs> and he, he, he picked it up for her and he bought it back. And no one prompted that. He just did that. And there was a moment when we got back to the class and he saw the sort of child that's really lovely, but not likely to get particularly overly embarrassed by me making a thing of that. And I just said, I just I just looked at him and I said, I just really want to say thank you for the way you thought of other girl in the class in that moment and pick that certificate up. But I just thought that was really considerate. And I just want you to know how much we appreciate that in this school, that you do things like that. And uh, Nick Hart spoke about this in our last podcast. When we talked about impact. He was giving an example of a teacher that did this so well, like narrating the positives in that way. And I think, you know, I think one of my old head teachers said, you know, they'll, they'll give you what you notice. And I do think that is a really... Mm a really good thing to live by just that if, if you've said this is what you expect then do show them you've you've noticed when they actually bother to do it and and he wasn't awarded a house point for that or, or anything like that it was just that thank you and that yeah. that he was seen doing that lovely thing so yeah well what a lovely chat has been Andrew I'm, I'm not at all surprised that we've had such a wonderful conversation with you again you're always welcome back on our podcast goodness knows what we'll get you on for next we've done <laughs> we've done the wider curriculum we've done behavior curriculum start lining up your next uh, <laughs> your next bit of material okay <laughs> i'm sure Andrew won't mind if you want to reach out to him um on twitter and yeah. we'll tag him into things when we post this podcast and on all our different social media like always if you do enjoy what we do we do really appreciate a kind comment whether that be a, a, a retweet or a response or a lovely review on on whatever podcast platform you listen on but uh yeah thanks again angie for giving up some of your time i'm sure many leaders and teachers would have found this a really helpful listen i've enjoyed it thank you very much the dynamic deputies